We live in a culture that values power, prestige, influence. It seems that for most, the primary goal throughout the year is upward movement, right? Promotions, raises, more followers, more say in how things should be done. That seems to be kind of the, the, the way we decide whether a year is good or whether a year was bad was kind of looking at what we've accumulated throughout that year that is more. However, in the hustle and bustle of our upward pursuits, Christmas offers the subversive message that God is bringing a great reversal. It disrupts all of that upward movement. God is working to humble the self-exalt uh, to, to humble the self-exalting and to exalt the humble. We see that specifically in Mary's Magnificat, uh, where the Lord is magnified because he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Now, this theme of great reversal can be tracked all the way through Luke's gospel. You can see it in Luke chapter 2 all the way to Luke 24, uh, but it's seen especially in Jesus's birth narrative. In a great moment of irony, we have the most powerful Caesar in history fading to the background and is depicted as nothing more than a pawn in God's redemptive plan. And in his place, the spotlight shines on a baby in a feeding trough and a handful of shepherds. It's a great reversal where the self-exalting are humbled, pushed to the background, and the humble are exalted and pulled to the forefront of the Christmas story. Now, the subversive message of Christmas reminds us that Christ has condescended to the lowest of places to bring us up with him. Those that are humble, those that have, that have trust in him, those who believe in him, he brings them up with him into peace and glory of God. Now, the story of Jesus' birth opens with a historical factoid, just a little history lesson here. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quinarius, or before Quinarius, was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. Now, you might not care much for history. You might read this story. You might read Luke 2 uh, before opening presents on Christmas Day with your kids, and you really haven't ever thought about, well, who in the world was Caesar Augustus? And why did Luke feel the need to record that, to add that historical factoid into his Christmas narrative? Surely we could have done without it, right? Just in those days, Jesus was born in a manger. Let's cut to the chase, Luke, right? So why add this seemingly strange addition of Caesar Augustus? Well, for one thing, and probably the most obvious, is that it links the gospels, it grounds the gospel story into human history, right? We're not dealing with a mythical story, right? It's not long time ago in some far off place. No, it's, it's an actual true story that happened in real time, in a real place. The gospel has deep roots in human history. It's a, it's a factual thing that actually happened. However, Luke's goal in mentioning Caesar Augustus is not just to give gospel, the gospel a historical grounding. That's not his goal. It goes beyond that. As mentioned earlier, one of his primary goals in telling the story is to track the great reversal of redemption, to show how God is humbling the self-exalting and how he is exalting the humble. 
He loves to contrast high things and low things. You, if you ever want a fun study, just, just look at all, that, all the ways that Luke, just go through it and see all the ways he uses the word high or poor or different things like that where he's contrasting the high and the low. Now, by mentioning Caesar, Luke sets up a contrast that begins with an exalted king and ends with a lowly baby and shepherds. In this little section, we're going to move from a political powerhouse, Caesar Augustus, and end with a vulnerable infant lying in a feeding trough because he's too, born, too poor to be born anywhere else. And it ends with, the names, with shepherds whose names have been forgotten by human history. Now, in many ways, I think when we read the Christmas story and we read what Luke writes here, we're reading the story of two kings two saviors, one the savior of Rome and the other the savior of all. Now, you might not know much about Caesar Augustus. This is where names in the Bible matter, places in the Bible matter. This isn't going to be a, a redemptive history class or anything like that, but it does matter who Augustus was. He was also known as Octavian. So those of you kids who have ever watched Night at the Museum, he's the little figure that comes to life at night, right? Octavian, one of the most famous, emperor, famous emperors in history. His imperial name that was given to him is Augustus, which means revered one. I read that and I was like, man, I need a title change, right? Senior pastor just isn't doing it. Revered one, pointing to his exalted status. He was the predecessor and the avenger of Julius Caesar, the guy that wore the red cape and defeated everybody. Also the guy that in Shakespeare's play was assassinated by Brutus. You guys remember in high school, you'll play et tu Brute, right? right? So you too, Brutus. This guy avenged Julius Caesar's assassin, assassins. He's the one that brought justice. He earned for himself the title, the savior of Rome. Imagine that on your resume. And then eventually he was deified into one of the Roman pantheon. He was prayed to, they sacrificed him. He was a brilliant strategist, amazing military man, and he annihilated anyone who stood up against him, including Mark Anthony and Cleopatra when they tried to overthrow him. Literally, no one has a hope of going against Caesar Augustus. He's the one that put Herod the Great on the throne in Judea. I mean, this is a political powerhouse. Most famous, well-known men in all of history knows how to wield a sword, knows how to wield an army. And so in light of that, when you see a man like that, um, when he declares that all the people living in his kingdom in the, in the Roman world should move, go back to their ancestral city right now to be registered for taxes, they did so. Can you imagine having a president that says, hey, you have to go back to your hometown uh, because we want to register you from where you're from and it's going to inform us on how much more to tax you. Or Texans would have a heyday with that, right? But that's what's happening. This Roman Caesar says, go back. It doesn't matter how inconvenient it is. It doesn't matter if you're leaving a job. Find someone to feed your pets because you've got to go to your hometown. So you live in Nazareth. It doesn't matter. Go all the way back to Bethlehem and be registered so that I can tax you appropriately. And so we have this man who, when he demands that the entire Roman world jump, everyone else asks, how high? 
So with Caesar, we begin with that, that, that pin, the, a king who's at the pinnacle of his power. The pinnacle of just whatever he says people do. And yet, as great as Caesar Augustus was, as powerful as he was, behind the scenes there's a greater secret sovereignty at work. What might seem to be nothing more than the whimsical desires of a Caesar was actually the plan of God unfolding in a way that was so subtle and so secret that few in those days actually discerned what was happening. Proverbs 21.1 says that the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. It's no accident that this megalomaniac king decides at this point in history that all the world should move at his whim and go back to their hometown and be registered. Why? Because long ago, God declared that the ruler of Israel, the Savior, the Messiah, must be born in a very particular place, Bethlehem. How amazing is that, that the whole world gets a command? Caesar's not doing what he's doing so that Jesus could be born in Bethlehem. Caesar's doing it because he wants more taxes. He loves the ability to watch people dance at his beckoning move. And yet underneath all of that, God says, yeah, I can use the evil, whimsical, megalomaniac desires of a wicked king so that my chosen family can go all the way back to Bethlehem so that the Messiah could be born. That's power. That's sovereignty. The son of David must be born in the city of David, the very city where David was anointed as Israel's king. It must happen that way. Now, if you know anything about Bethlehem, if you've ever been to Israel, you know it's, it's not, the, not a place that we naturally think is a royal birthing ground, right? It's not, it's not a hometown for a king. Bethlehem's not a very significant city. It wasn't in David's day, and it's not, it wasn't in Jesus' day, and still today, it's not that significant. In fact, back in those days, it really couldn't be called a city. It was more of a village. Certainly no Rome or Jerusalem. And yet, it was in this rather insignificant place that the most significant ruler in all of human history was born. I just want to invite you to bask in the comfort of God's sovereignty in that. That God works in strange ways, doesn't he? He sends people to strange places. He works through a strange sovereignty. He's the one who's working through the currents of all the bad things that are happening in history and accomplishing his purposes even through those things. Christmas reminds us that God is a God who will do as he wills. God's a God who will do as he says. God's a God who will keep his promises even in moments that we don't think he's keeping his promises. None of us would have been, if we lived in that time, none of us would have seen this pregnant woman and her carpenter husband heading to Bethlehem and thought that that was God moving heaven and earth to restore all things. None of us would have thought that. The savior of the world was born in Bethlehem? Of all places, when there's a Roman emperor demanding a census, 
We can take comfort. Whatever fears may come, whoever's in power, whoever's uh, calling the shots and telling you to jump and you left asking how high, it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, God is working behind the curtains. His sovereignty will accomplish his eternal redemptive purposes no matter what happens. No one can thwart the purposes of God, not even Caesar himself. Now, all that's just kind of a side story to all that. It invites us to take comfort in God's sovereignty, but it also points our eyes to one of the most important points of Luke's Advent story. Every detail Luke writes is meant to display the humility of Christ and his condescension for you. In a world where political powerhouses like the revered Caesar Augustus reign, Christ is born in the little village of Bethlehem, wrapped in swaddling clothes and laid in a manger, which for those of you that don't know what that is, is literally a feeding trough. Nasty, dirty, filled with animal spit. Luke is careful to record that he had to be born in this way because there was no place for them in the inn. Now, I'm gonna, just a spoiler alert, I'm gonna kind of wreck a little bit of your Hollywood renditions of this. In the English version, we translate the word as an inn, and it kind of paints this picture. And, and, and what we're used to is these Hollywood versions where Mary and Joseph just make it to Bethlehem, and Joseph starts banging on the doors of all these little inns and hotels and all that. Friends, there's probably not a commercial inn in Bethlehem at this time. There's no place that you can go and like pay someone money and stay in a room. It's not a hostel, not a hotel, not a motel, not an Airbnb, none of, none of those things, Right? Um, what ends up happening is you would come to the town and you would stay with family or friends. And, and in those days, hospitality was so important that even the smallest houses typically had a guest room to host visitors. Uh, in fact, in Luke's narrative, it seems like they get there, they get to the place where they're gonna stay. And then he says in verse six, while they were there, Mary goes into labor. So they're staying in this house. They, they, they've got these friends or these family members who have this guest room um, and, and who have the ability to, to host people. And where do they end up? Well, in the room meant for animals. You see, even in houses that had a guest room, when worldwide events happen, when big events like the Passover or a worldwide census, little places like Bethlehem exploded. I mean, people are sleeping everywhere, on the roof, on the couch, on the TV. I mean, people are literally sleeping everywhere, right? It's not elf on the shelf, it was self on the shelf, right? So you just literally laid out wherever you could um, in, in times like that. I just wanna, wanna kinda bring this in, because this is really important. No, we kinda overlook this detail sometimes. Imagine in our own day, we have only a small house, so we, we have a small house, and we have one room that guests can typically stay in. Now, imagine you have one room, but two sets of cousins show up for Christmas. Who gets the guest bedroom, and who gets the couch? Or more appropriately to where Jesus was sleeping, who gets the guest bedroom, and who gets the dog's bed? Well, in those days, the more influential and more powerful family member is the one that's given the guest bedroom, right? So you get wealthy Aunt Sue that shows up. You're not gonna put her in the place where there's a manger. You're gonna put whoever outranks the other into the guest bedroom. So they show up 
into this family room and the, into, this, into this family relative's house and the guest room's already taken up. Probably by someone who outranks them. Instead of getting the family suite, they get the room on the lower floor. That's next to a cave. It could be in a cave. It could be a little, little uh, room built specifically for animals and they get to sleep where the animals have slept. Now, before you start throwing Christmas ornaments at me for wrecking your beloved Christmas movie, think about how even that point adds to the fact that Jesus condescended for you. From even birth, Jesus is already displaying a humility that far extends the humility of, that most of us could ever, could ever have. His birth sets the trajectory for his whole ministry in life. He is the king of creation, and yet he is born too poor to even afford his family's best hospitality. His own family member not allowing him to sleep in the guest room because someone more powerful, someone more high class, someone wealthier already living in the guest bedroom. So he gets the manger. That's par for the course for Jesus. He grows up and he says, foxes have their holes and birds have nests, but the Savior has no place to lay his head. When it came time for him to die, he humbled himself to undergo a death and not just a, an execution, not a noble end to his life, but the death, a, a death that was reserved for only slaves and for criminals, a death on a cross. Roman citizens couldn't die that way. Normal citizens couldn't die that way. Only slaves and insurrectionists died on the cross. And that's the death that Jesus died. The Bible tells the story of a humble king who came to earth. He made himself poor, was born and laid in a manger, lived without a place to lay his head, died on the cross so that you could be made royalty. Can you just imagine the astound, that astounding fact that we are a royal priesthood? That's how scripture describes us. It uses words like we will reign together with Christ. That the king of all creation made himself poor and lived in poverty so that you could be made royalty and accept the outlandish love and grace and kindness of God forever. It's one of the reasons Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And so already in Luke chapter 2, we see just evidence, a, a foretaste of what's to be seen. We see a foretaste of Christ's willing poverty. We see his poor, unfit cradle. And we see a glimpse of the cross, a preview. He deserved more than the manger and he deserved more than the cross, but already in his birth narrative, he is displaying to all that he's the king who's come not to be served, but to serve. He's the king who's come not to be enriched, but from his own riches, make himself poor so that you could be made rich. This is Luke's tale of two kings, right? Contrast between the Roman king Caesar and the ruler born in Bethlehem, sharp. 
One king sits in a Roman palace with his enemies dead or defeated and servants carrying out his every whimsical desire. The other lies vulnerable in a manger wrapped in the garments of poverty. One king works for his own self-promotion, demanding all the world move for him. And the other king descends from heaven because there was no way for the world to ascend up to him. It's like what C.S. Lewis once wrote, he comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into, humi- into humanity, down further still to the very roots and seabed of the nature he has created. But he goes down to come up again, to bring the whole ruined world up with him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must also disappear under the, under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and muscles and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. What a beautiful picture of the incarnation. The Christmas story is a story about a king who stoops. Stoops into finite creation, stoops into suffering, stoops into death, stoops into the grave. Why? In order to raise up sinners like us with him. The poor child lying in the manger is actually the God of heaven stooping so that you can have a place in his presence forever, so that you can have a a forever seat in his glory and be a recipient of his kindness. Just at this moment, we're left basking in the glory of Christ, who's a, who's a king like no other. What other king do you know who has ever stooped in such a way for his people? My friends, I don't know very many people who are willing to stoop in the first place, king or not. And yet, Christ is the king who stoops for his people. Just think of the way that should, should shape and impact our discipleship. My friends, we live in a culture that does not easily stoop especially if stooping holds no real benefit to us. If there's nothing in it for me, I'm not gonna stoop for you. That's typically our attitude. However, the advent reminds us that we have a gracious God who stoops to bring us up with him. And so in light of that, shouldn't we be stooping for each other? Shouldn't we be bowing the back to carry other loads and bring up people? And there's all this thought of what Christ has done, this great condescension where he's worthy of much more than what he gets and yet he stoops down, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men. He gave up absolutely nothing of his divinity. He was very much the omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent God that he ever was. And yet in his incarnation, he chooses to be given the status of man. To not just take on their flesh and bone, to not just have blood going through his veins, but to live in poverty and to die like the lowest of slaves. Not for just anyone, but for you. Some of my worst moments in life come because I don't contemplate the gospel. Some of the moments that I don't feel like celebrating happen because I'm not basking in the glory of all of that. 
Jesus, not just being another figure in human history, but the incorruptible God, the eternal Lord, who stooped down so that my corruptible self could be made incorruptible. So that I, who deserve nothing but eternal death, could be given eternal life. He takes on my death so that I could have his resurrection. He gives out of his riches, not selfishly hoarding all things to himself, not making a census and taxes so that you can give to him, but so that he gives to you. He's always giving out of his riches and making himself poor so that you can be made rich. Why then can we not stoop for others? Why then can we not bow the back? Why are we so troubled with pride, arrogance, image keeping, self-ambition, and power plays? Why are we so taken up with that? We see none of those things in the baby in the manger, do we? We don't see arrogance when we look at the baby in a manger. We don't see selfish ambition. We don't see pride or a power move. We see a humble savior who humbled himself so that you could be exalted with him. The scene now shifts from the manger scene to a field where shepherds are keeping watch of their flocks. We've gone from the heights of Caesar's royal court, and now we come to open fields where there are shepherds sleeping outside. Now, in biblical times, if you know anything about shepherds, you know that they were considered the bottom rung of society's ladder. They're doing the job that nobody else wants. Far from a comfortable life in town, they sweated in the sun, they shivered at night, They slept on the ground, they ate whatever supplies they could scrounge up, and they were probably smelly and dirty, and um, some speculate that if uh, you couldn't hold a normal job in town, like maybe you were uh, incapacitated, had a lame leg or whatever, that you might work as a shepherd. This might be one job that you could do. And yet, it's to smelly, dirty shepherds that the first announcement of the gospel is made. That's the topsy-turviness of the gospel. You know, I, I, being a pastor, I've met a lot of people who like to be in the know. A lot of people who get offended when they're not in the know. And yet, in the gospel, the first people who are in the know are homeless shepherds who sleep on the ground. Not kings. God didn't run it by a governor. He didn't run it by a city official. He didn't run it by Caesar. Hey, just so you know, Caesar, I'm sitting by, no, the very first people to hear the announcement to be brought into the know of what God was doing are mundane shepherds. And what an amazing thing that God does here. By God's design, something as simple and mundane as a shepherd's field is transformed into a virtual holy of holies. It says in Luke 2 that the glory of the Lord shone around them. You know, if you're tracking the biblical story, then you know that up to this point, God's glory has shown up in the tabernacle. God's glory has shown up in the temple. God's glory has shown up behind a curtain in the Holy of Holies, but never out in the open like this. This is awesome. God's not hiding himself or veiling his glory at all. He's opening up wide, filling the field so that the shepherds could experience what it's like. Shepherds would never have a hope. They're too unclean. Never have a hope to get into the Holy of Holies. Only the high priest, only once a year can can do that. And yet these shepherds are 
given a, a view that no high priest had ever really seen. Opening his glory out to the field. What's more, every time God's glory is seen, typically it comes, it, it results in people falling back. So there's once that God descended on Mount Sinai and spoke in a booming voice, right? Giving the law to his people. They all fall back in fear. They shrivel back and they don't want to, they don't want to hear from God anymore. They want Moses to speak for him instead. And yet now we hear the message, hey, don't shrink back. Fear not. Come closer. How great is that? Hebrews contrasts Mount Sinai with Mount Zion. On Mount Sinai, all God's people shrink back in fear and run away when the Lord appears. On Mount Zion, they all come close. Where it's a glory that draws us in. And so here in this field, the shepherds are standing and God's glory fills it. And it's, it's amazing and huge and thick. And they hear the comforting words, don't shrink back, don't run away, fear not. For I bring you good news, great news. Doesn't it kind of sound like that song that we sing every Christmas? Joy to the world, where every rock hill, every field, flood, rock, hill, and plain repeats the sounding joy. There we have a shepherd's field literally repeating the sounding joy. Filling all creation with the glory of God. The angel announces that it will be good news of great joy that will be for all people, literally all the earth. Every nation will be offered the benefits of good news. And what's the reason for this great joy? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That should echo for you, Isaiah 9, for to us a child is born, a son is given, but that son has come He's the Christ, the Davidic king who, to, to whom all the kings of the earth must revere and show reverence and worship. He's the one whose dominion will know no end. He's been born and guess where you can find him? In a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes. The eternal forever Davidic king can be found and accessible to you shepherds. Just like God's glory has been made wide open for you, so now the presence of the eternal son of God, the Davidic king whose dominion will know no end has made accessible to you. You couldn't get an audience with Caesar like that. But these shepherds are given an audience with the king of the universe. Made so accessible. It's at that moment, an army of angels appeared shouting the praise, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Now, we read that and we see hosts, right? And we see a host of angels, host of angels. The Greeks' armies, this is, this is a military outfit, right? These angelic warriors show up and they fill the sky. It's invasion time, right? God has let loose his armies from heaven. But instead of bringing war, guess what? They, what see what they bring. Peace. Declaration of peace. It's an invasion, but it's an invasion of joy. It's an invasion of peace. It's an invasion that the king has come not to bring war and the sword against sinners, but to bring peace with God to people like us. So they hear the angel's announcement. 
the shepherds go to the child, go to the try to find the child. It says they they went in haste, which means they were running. I mean, this is news that you run for, right? If you run for any, there's not much that can get me to run. But news like that should make us run. They go in haste. They found the child, and they start telling people what they heard in the field. They start telling him them of the angels and the message that was brought to it. Mary's listening, and she's treasuring it up in her heart. And then it says. That after they had seen the child, they returned glorifying God and praising him for all that they had heard and seen as it, as it had been told to them. My friends, the glorifying and praising, that, that, those two words together insinuate that they didn't go back quietly. This wasn't a silent walk home. It was a celebration. You know, these shepherds who we don't even remember their names, we don't know where they're buried, we don't know who their families were, if they had families. These shepherds who were overlooked in their own day and forgotten in their own day have become kind of the master of ceremony when it comes to Christmas. You think of shepherds at Christmas, they're the ones who instruct us in how to have joy. How amazing is that? That these poor shepherds teach high class people people who have homes, people who have comfortable jobs, people who have cars, they can teach us how to slow down and celebrate. They're the ones that teach us to sing just a little bit louder at Christmas. Those, those hymns that we sing, those aren't boring hymns. This is, this is the truth that God became a man, took on flesh and died for you. Sing that a little bit louder this time. Laugh a little bit longer. You don't have to be so mournful. There's a lot to mourn, a lot of sadness, a lot of broken hearts and broken memories at Christmas. And yet there's that subversive message that you can now have joy because Christ has come. They're the ones that tell you, hey, eat the Christmas cookies. Eat, drink, be merry. Sit close to the fire Hold the hand of the one that you love. Rip open the presents. Why? Because it's worth celebrating. We're not celebrating the stuff. We're celebrating the Christ. It's all good news to us. Christ has come. My friends, I think sometimes we, we impoverish the gospel rather than basking in the riches that overflow in it. My friends, I get all gushy at Christmas. I, I'm totally, 100%, a holiday movie watcher. I don't believe in Santa. Saint Nick was a real historic person, so you kids cover your ears and just listen to that part. Um, but I love watching Santa movies. I don't know why, right? I just love watching them. I love hot cocoa. That's my dude. I love marshmallows in my hot cocoa. Yes. I love chocolate-covered peanuts. I love peppermint. I love candy canes. I love all of that. But the reason that I can enjoy that and feast in that is because we have reason to feast. All of this holiday season is just a foretaste of the great celebration that's still to come. It's just little previews. This is the, the warming up ceremony the Christmas tree, the lights and all that, all that, you're right. All that's fluff and all that's gonna go away someday. But bask in the celebration now because it's, 
It's a preview of what's to come. Can you imagine what Advent will be like when we're celebrating the second Advent, not the first? If we celebrate Christmas like this, imagine how we're gonna celebrate the second Advent, right? Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Past tense, he's already been here. We're celebrating. My friends, the shepherds just encourage us and show us how to celebrate the gospel well. Glorify and praise God. Be joyful about the news that we have heard in the gospel. We know that the manger is just the beginning. There's more to come. And we know more than the shepherds knew. They had no clue what was coming. They knew that this savior, this uh, baby would be the savior. They had no clue how that salvation would happen. We do. We have even more reason to glorify and praise God than these shepherds did. So my friends, there's, there's two applications from the Christmas story that I think you can walk away with. Number one, just as I said earlier, Christ has condescended and humbled himself for you. So you should be humbling yourself for others. If Christ stooped for you, be sure that you stoop for others. Don't judge, don't be arrogant, don't be prideful, but stoop and bear loads and bring others up with you. Put your arms under the shoulders of those that are heavy laden and tired. Walk with them, even if it's not your problem. Stoop and serve. That's application number one. The second one we have is just go home and celebrate. Enjoy the season. Meditate long on the meaning of why we even celebrate in the first place. If it means nothing, then just get rid of it. But obviously we don't get rid of it because we have believed and we have held that it is worth taking a time to commemorate that Christ took on flesh. Celebrate it. Be gushy about it. Don't be one of those humbug Grinches that are like, ah, I don't, it's every day. Yeah, yeah, it's great. It is every day, but especially these days. Celebrate well, glorify God. Enjoy family. Take long walks with your father. Little quiet moments where you can enjoy the cool breeze and the joy of the season. Eat, eat sweet things. And remember that even sweet things are symbolic of the sweetness that God has given you in the gospel. Bask in the glory of Christmas. Our Savior has brought glory from the highest to men of the lowest is worthy of celebration. I just want to free you up this week. Put down the emails for a little bit. Those tasks are not so urgent. Your goals for next year are important, but those will come. For the moment, just stop, breathe, rest, and praise the Lord for the Savior who took on flesh, laid in a manger, carried your cross, died and rose again so that you could have joy. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your love and for your grace. God, we just pray that you will be with us this Advent season, that it won't just be a cliche celebration, Father, but that it will be something that is mindful of the greater truth that we have. Lord, we thank you that Jesus took on flesh for us, that he condescended, 
Lord, that he was too poor even to afford the hospitality of his family in the guest room. That foxes had holes and birds have nests, but our Savior had no place to lay his head. We thank you, Lord, that he's the same Savior who took our cross, who died like a slave, so that we could be made sons of God. Father, there's so many people here, Lord, that I know that are hurting, that are um, mourning the loss of loved ones, Father, the empty seats at the table, the pictures that come out, the ornaments that come out and remind them of the loss that they've had. Father, I pray that even in that, you will remind them of the great advent to come, that you will restore their joy. Father, we wanna pray specifically for the Vaughns today and just ask that you be with them in their suffering and in their hardship. Father, we pray that you will uh, work in such a way that will bring glory to you, Father. Lord, we just pray that Megan, uh, their daughter, will see your goodness and your grace in all that you do for her. Lord, help us to celebrate well, and we pray this in your son's name, amen.